are listening to Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepherd, and we have entered the season of Advent. This is a season of expectation and preparation for the coming of Christmas. And of course, Christmas is something very familiar, very comforting, like a well-worn pair of slippers that we put on when the weather gets cold. But the thing about it is, at the heart of Christmas, there is a profound mystery. God coming into the world, being born amongst us as one of us, yet still God. So during this Advent season, instead of rushing on to Christmas, we are pausing, we're waiting. And in the waiting, we are journeying together into the mystery. Here's this week's message. Our first reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will, be, he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son. And he named him Jesus. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Well, you may have detected it in that passage from Matthew, but the the Gospel of Matthew likes to make reference to the words of the prophets. Later on in in that story of Jesus' birth, uh, there's a time when Joseph takes his family, his young family, out of Israel to Egypt. Um, And then shortly thereafter, Matthew makes reference to another prophecy, and that is where our second scripture comes from today. It's from the book of Hosea in the 11th chapter. Read the first four verses. Let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them, and I fed them. This is the word of God for us here today. Thanks be to God. You join me now in a moment of prayer. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, 
come and dwell a while with us here. Take hold of us and lift us up by your wisdom and your word. Holy Spirit, work a healing in us today. Work in us something that we may not be able to comprehend, yet let us know that it is you who nourishes us. Let us know that it is you, O God, who builds us up. I may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O God, our strength and indeed our Savior. Amen. Well, in 1953, in his debut novel, Casino Royale, Sir Ian Fleming introduced us to Bond, James Bond, Secret Agent 007, the international man of mystery. And in that first novel, Bond is indeed quite mysterious. Fleming's concise style of writing is short on descriptive details about the man himself in order to make room for all of the twists and turns of this complex plot and to keep the story moving along. In the opening chapters of Casino Royale, the the picture we get of James Bond basically gives us just a few details. He has black hair. He's got a good head for numbers, uh, and he has, he has a careful attention to the most minute details around him. That is what leads to his success as a secret agent. Of course, this picture of Bond was, was fleshed out, not so much in these books, but in the 25 James Bond films. Stretching across more than 50 years, Bond movies are practically required viewing for young men, who see in Bond a masculine ideal that for better or worse, but probably mostly for worse, remains remarkably durable. One writer puts it this way, Bond is more of a concept than a human being, which is why you can have six different actors play him. And that concept is a very toxic version of masculinity. He feels nothing, he lashes out violently, he takes whatever he feels entitled to, And yet, this image has managed to persist in today's culture and will in all likelihood continue to persist. Indeed, for all of the swashbuckling action, all of the twists and turns of the Bond films, the character at their heart is at his core nothing more than a killer in a nice tuxedo, a misogynist who objectifies women, using them for his own gratification or to advance his story before discarding them not unlike the gadgets or the cars that he wrecks uh, in order to complete his mission. When you get right down to it, this James Bond, this international man of mystery, is not really mysterious at all. He embodies power and privilege. He claims to stand against the villains of the world and yet nonetheless causes significant collateral damage along the way. He is a bully, and we all know what a bully is is like. There's no mystery there. But this morning's scripture is about a truly mysterious man, a true international man of mystery, the man who would call Jesus son, the man who is in one sense the hero of this Christmas story, a man who's often overlooked or treated as kind of set dressing to the manger scene. That is, of course, Joseph. Joseph of Nazareth. 
As I mentioned earlier, he is an international man of mystery. He, he crosses international borders, taking Mary and the baby, fleeing to Egypt from the villainy and the tyranny of King Herod. And then after, after they flee, he returns to Israel, but does not resettle in Bethlehem, the city of David, where the story begins. Instead, he goes farther north to this backwater town called Nazareth. But what do we really know about Joseph? You may have heard that he was an old man who had, whose previous wife had died, who had children from a previous marriage. It's one story that goes around. You may have heard that he was a descendant of King David, one of those random folks who can claim a, a world historical figure as somehow being in their family tree, sort of like all the people here in New England who have an ancestor who was on the Mayflower. And you've probably heard that he was a carpenter and, and that he apprenticed his son, Jesus, and Jesus worked as a carpenter as well. And now some of those stories we have confirmation of in Scripture. We have confirmation of the, of the genealogy, for one thing. But a lot of the things we cannot really corroborate. We're told that Joseph is a righteous man, which, like Zechariah, whom we heard about a, a couple weeks ago, means that Joseph abided by the Jewish laws and practiced his religion faithfully. And we are also told he is a carpenter. It's not described to us by the narrator in the gospel, but rather it's a detail that sort of emerges secondhand. The first time Jesus appears in the synagogue in Nazareth and the people there are wondering, isn't this Joseph's son, Joseph the carpenter? That's the only time we hear that he, he was a carpenter. That's the only mention of carpentry when it comes to Joseph. But really beyond his trade, beyond the fact that he was a righteous man, what else can we say about Joseph? Was he young? Was he old? Did he have children from a previous marriage? Did he have subsequent children with Mary after Jesus' birth? Scripture doesn't tell us anything of these details. Lots of people have sort of tried to sleuth them out, have sought to insert them into the story, but the truth is we just don't know. It is a mystery. But the greatest enigma about Joseph is the fact that in Scripture, he is silent. Think about the cast of characters in Christmas. If you can't remember them all, you can just cheat sheet right here. <laughs> Consider all of these people, right? Every one of the people in the manger gets a line in this story. They get to speak at some point. The shepherds say, let us go to Bethlehem. The angel, of course, brings glad tidings of great joy. Even Elizabeth and Zechariah, who don't make the manger scene, they have lines, a lot of lines. And, of course, Mary has this great solo in the first act, the Magnificat. But Joseph, Joseph never says a word. Not a single word of Joseph is recorded in Scripture. It does say that he named the baby... So presumably he could speak. But then again, the Zechariah story says you can name a baby without speaking too. So who knows? Who knows? None of the gospel writers saw fit to record any of the words of Joseph. This earthly father of Jesus, this all-important character to the arc of this story, 
None of them saw fit to put any words into his mouth. He is just there by the manger, silent. And silences are difficult. Silence can be enigmatic. Silence can make us uncomfortable. We have a, a, a dish towel in our kitchen that my brother gave Whitney and I. It says, silence is golden unless you have children, in which case silence is suspicious. <laughs> There's something about a silence that seems to compel us to fill it in with something, some word, some sound, some movement, something. For the most part, the world is a noisy place, and that's our default setting. So when we, get, when we get to a place that is really genuinely silent, when things go quiet, oftentimes our first assumption is that something must be wrong there. Indeed, many assume that Joseph's silence in the scriptures is an indication that he died, that he just was not in the picture. But there's also a kind of silence that is not so uncomfortable, I think. The thing about silence is that it can be golden. It just depends when and with whom we are silent. When we are in an unfamiliar place, when we are alone, silence is awkward. It can be disconcerting. But at home or in a familiar place like this, Silence can be a gift. When we are buoyed up by the trust that we find in a loving relationship, then we don't mind the silence. I remember once uh, we were in Starbucks, and I saw this couple that was sitting over uh, enjoying their coffees together, and they were, one was reading a book, the other was just sitting there sort of sipping their coffee, and they were not talking to each other for a long time. And I kept thinking to myself, man... Is that what happens? You get to a point in your marriage where you just run out of things to say to one another? <laughs> but the truth is, is that you get to a point in your marriage, you get to a point where you can be silent together and you feel no need to fill the space. Because even if silence is unsettling, it's not necessarily uncomfortable. And here's the thing about a silence. In silence, you may hear something you wouldn't have heard otherwise. Joseph, righteous though he was, probably didn't have the luxury of spending a lot of time in prayer. He probably didn't do a lot of talking to God outside of the rituals at the temple that he would have uh, participated in. He was busy, and so God had to come and find him in his dreams the only time when he could truly be quiet and listen. And we wonder, of course, about what Joseph's response would have been to this news that he received, that God had chosen him to be the parent of the Messiah. What did Joseph say? We know what Mary said, but nothing from Joseph. And that's how dreams work. You don't get to talk back in them. Yet Joseph shows us here. He shows us what his response is. He shows us with his actions. 
The scripture tells us about what Joseph did, that he chose to not only do what was righteous, but to go beyond that and to do what was loving. Joseph, of course, could have dismissed Mary when he found out she was pregnant. That was his plan. That would have been the righteous thing to do, meaning that would have been within the letter of the law. Even then, he was compassionate enough to not expose her to public disgrace, showing that he's not just living by the letter of the law. He is, he's living by its spirit. And, of course, the story of Jesus' life would have been profoundly different if that had been how things played out. Jesus would have been born to an assumed adulteress who probably never would have been able to remarry. He would have been raised as the son of an unwed mother in this backwater town. And his life would have been much more precarious than it was. Yet that's not what happens. Joseph not only does not dismiss Mary, he marries Mary. And then he doesn't consummate the marriage until after she has given birth. And in this, he really is the anti-James Bond, refusing to reduce Mary to an object for his own sexual gratification. You see, Joseph shows us a very different kind of masculine ideal, I think. Yes, he's still the strong, silent type of man, but he's more than just a two-dimensional cardboard cutout. His actions reveal a depth of character I think. Actions that are not the actions of a fighter, but the actions of a father. They're not the actions of a liar or a lever, but of a lover. In her book, All About Love, Bell Hooks says that love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Love is the thing that draws us out of ourselves to feed and to nourish another person's growth. It's to choose not only to, to support the well-being of someone else, but to support growth into something more than simple well-being. It's about abundant life. Behold the miracle, Howard Thurman once wrote about the experience of love. He said, love loves. This is its nature. But this does not mean that love is blind or naive or pretentious. It does not mean that love holds its object securely in its grasp, calling all that it sees by its true name, but surrounding all with a wisdom born of both its passion and its understanding. Here, he says, is no traffic in sentimentality, no catering to our weakness or to our strengths. Instead, in love there is robust vitality quickens the roots of our personality, creating an unfolding of the self that redefines, reshapes, and indeed makes all things new. And so the prophet Isaiah captures that experience, that God is love. The prophet records the words of God as the parent loving their child, wrapping their child in bands of love, lifting them to their cheek. I bent down, it says. I bent down and I fed them. I nourished them. And of course, you can see it right here in the figure of Joseph. We see the enactment of love. He's not standing aloof. 
if you can't see it from the back. He's not. He's bent down on one knee. They say that if you, if you want to talk to a child, you have to get down physically at eye level and meet them where they are. And, and that's also why we lift up babies, newborns. We lift them up to our cheeks so that they can see us eye to eye, hold them as close to our face so that their little eyes can, can make out some of the blurry images. And indeed, a newborn baby is lifted up and held heart to heart and skin to skin, not just so that they can have a physical connection, but so that that spiritual connection of love may begin and be the truest source of their life's growth. Howard Thurman says that the experience of love is something so fundamental in quality to us that an individual knows that what is happening to them when they are loved, what is happening to them can outlast all things without itself being dissipated or lost. Hence, the psalmist says that as long as the love of God shines on us undimmed, not only may no darkness obscure, but also we may find our way to a point in other hearts, beyond all weakness and all strength, beyond all that is good and beyond all that is evil. That is what the experience of love can give to us. Love, friends, is fundamentally what draws God down to earth in this Advent season. And love is, of course, what draws us in our own lives out into the unknown, into that unsettling but not uncomfortable silence into the mystery. For that is fundamentally what love is. It is a mystery. A mystery that is yet completely fundamental in quality to our being, as Howard Thurman says. Cannot live without it. So friends, let love be love. In whatever form that takes, For love is from God, and indeed God is love. And nothing in this world, neither height nor depth, neither powers nor principality, neither things present or things past, nor anything at all in creation, even death, nothing can destroy the love of God that is born into the world. This mystery coming into the manger. Amen. listening. To learn more about Union Congregational Church and our ministries, you can visit churchbythepark.org or you can find us on Facebook at Church by the Park. You are more than welcome to join us for worship throughout this Advent season at Union, either on Sundays at 1015 a.m., in person at 55 Rhodes Avenue in Walpole, or online via live stream. We'll also have a special candlelight service on Christmas Eve, December 24th at 5 p.m. I hope today's message has helped lead you into the mystery of this season to open your heart to the wonder of God's presence and the gift of God's grace. Until next time, may grace and peace be with you.